0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we're sharing an episode of Hold Your Fire, Crisis Group's global weekly podcast. They interviewed me on my reflections on South Sudan's past decade, and so we thought we'd share it here as well for you. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
2: And I'm Richard Atwood. This week, South Sudan celebrates its 10th birthday. A decade ago, thousands of elated South Sudanese celebrated in the capital, Juba, to mark their country's independence. Foreign dignitaries, including from the US, China, and the UN, were there to pledge support and funds. I commend President here on reaching today's milestone. You have walked a long road in the name of peace. That journey
1: continues. While the pillars of the, of the House are important, its foundation is even more critical. Our people will never again have to cross our borders in search of security. That was South Sudanese President Salva Kiir and former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. The jubilation of independence celebrations wore off quickly. Kiir fell out with his vice president, Riak Machar, A brutal power struggle led to civil war. The army split largely on ethnic lines. The conflict killed some 400,000 people, and more than four million, a third of the population, was displaced. It is yet another grievous setback.
2: It deepens the country's suffering. It makes a mockery of commitments to peace. Many people have been killed in heavy fighting. There are growing fears that many more could die in another round of violence. In 2018, Kieran Mashar signed a peace deal that brought an end to much of the fighting. But the two men are still bitterly at odds. Hold out rebels, battle government forces in the south. Millions still suffer from chronic hunger and unchecked violence by local militias. Many South Sudanese are furious at their leaders and at how little benefit they've seen from independence. Today, we're going to look back on 10 years of South Sudanese statehood with Alan Boswell, Crisis Group South Sudan expert. Alan is also host of another Crisis Group podcast. It's called The Horn, which every fortnight dives into the region's politics. Alan, thanks so much for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks, Richard and Naz. Thanks for having me.
1: Alan, you were in Juba during those independence celebrations we referred to earlier. Tell us a bit about that day.
0: Yeah, I think anyone who was uh, there on July 9th in 2011, it's it's a day that's very difficult uh, to forget. It's, of course, not. It's not, of course, every day that a, a country gets independence. And the level of jubilation there was, was, was obviously extremely high. It almost felt like a catharsis. You had tens of thousands of South Sunnis under midday sun. Speaker after speaker, and given how many decades they had uh, struggled to achieve uh, what became independence, the moment felt very special. It also, in many ways, uh, felt odd. There was already violence that had broken out. Uh, parts of northern Sudan that had fought with the South, South Kordofan and Blue Nile, had already gone back to civil war, because of how the secession was taking place, you had ongoing already insurgencies against the government of South Sudan. And, you know, there was a lot of warning signs uh, that had already started going off about how things would probably work in South Sudan. So it was it was a moment of jubilation. It was also it was also one of those moments where where it felt like there were already shadows starting to uh, starting to show up.
2: Alan, could we take a step back a little bit and talk about how the South Sudanese came to want independence? They fought this long war against Khartoum when South Sudan was obviously part of Sudan. John Garang, who was this South Sudanese leader, rebel leader for many years, and who was killed in this helicopter crash a few years before independence. I mean, he hadn't pushed for secession, right? So so how, how did the independence demand, how did that develop?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to talk about South Sudan fairly uh, in its current state without without talking about its long history South sudan was was subject to a lot of slave raiding, and that came from the north um, and Then the British, when they came in, uh, ruled South Sudan uh, separately from the rest of sudan and There was a decision made in the run up to Sudanese independence. Um, as decolonization started, to attach South Sudan to Sudan. And this was done uh, really without the consent of South Sudanese. And effectively, uh, there was discontent from really day one, as you can imagine, within South Sudan about finding themselves incredibly marginalized in this new northern Sudan. Uh, Insurgency started almost immediately after independence in the 1950s that insurgency sort of culminated into a 1972 peace deal that was the first time South Sudan was granted uh, something of uh, autonomy as a sort of independent entity and that that window lasted for roughly 11 years and eventually that collapsed, and you had another return to civil war in 1983. That lasted uh, a couple decades, basically leading up to the independence. That period was itself characterized by as much fighting within uh, Southern Sudan among uh, among southerners as it was uh, fighting against the regime in in Khartoum. There was a lot of divide and rule tactics. One of the important things to note, I think, is that the leader of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement that formed in 1983, John Garang, who's the one who signed this. Peace deal in 2005 uh, that ended the war. He was actually always a, publicly at least, was always a committed unionist. He was widely known for wanting to take power of all of Sudan and preached a gospel of what he called a new Sudan, a sort of multicultural Sudan. And I think that's part of how we ended up today is that although a lot of Southerners have always been uh, secessionists, really, uh, the leader who actually signed the peace deal that led to South Sudan's independence uh, was himself preaching unionism, which is, which is possibly one of the quirks in history that kind of allowed this uh, to all happen and play out the way it did.
1: So Alan, why did Bashir agree to this deal?
0: Uh, it's important to put this in context. So the, the the agreement, the initial agreement that granted South Sudan this this right to secede, uh, it was signed in two thousand and two. It was uh, known as the Machakos Protocol uh, in Kenya. This was early on in the Bush administration. You had a very proactive Bush administration when it came to uh, what was then Southern Sudan. You had a rather unique alliance in Washington uh that saw itself as as friends of South Sudan that sort of bridged evangelical Christians on the right you had uh, members of uh, Midland, Texas church community where George W. Bush was from and living personally lobbying him in the White House, and meanwhile you had sort of human rights activists and the Black uh, Congressional Caucus, for instance, on the on the Democratic side, uh, very much pushing for this. Bush appointed a special envoy who supported talks, and of course this was um, soon after the Global War on Terror uh, started, and the U.S. pressure on Khartoum was was always built on the fact that there were terrorists who had uh, attacked Americans uh, using Sudan as a base. Of course, Osama bin Laden had lived in Sudan for a while. And so there was uh, there was some real fear in Khartoum that they might be, uh, you know, next on the list uh, of the war on terror. So there was, there was actual leverage, uh, you know, sort of the height, I would say, of at least perception of American power, perhaps in these parts of the world. And I think that played a big role. I mean, obviously, the war had been going on for a while, and the North was not able to win it. And the, the region had also been putting a peace process, but it is sort of hard to, to remove it from the broader geopolitics of the time.
2: And so Alan, you were there on the day of independence. I mean, you sort of described all this jubilation. And you talked a little bit about some of the warning signs that were already starting to show. Could, could you expand a little bit on those?
0: There were a few really big warning signs. I'd say first of all was just the fact that all this uh, internal divisions and sort of enmity that characterized um, a lot of the southern struggle, uh, that was, you know, never really dealt with directly. It was sort of papered over. There was really no real effort at reconciliation. Looking ahead... Uh, the focus was very much just on independence. One of the really big warning signs was how uh, southern Sudan was treating its oil revenue. It was uh, The peace deal, the wealth sharing provisions gave it uh, 50% of the revenue uh, that was uh, produced from the oil in the south, which accounted to billions of dollars overnight to southern Sudan, and it was basically treated like a slush fund. I mean, the degree to which there were not state institutions is almost impossible to um, to overstate. And I think there was an assumption that, like, the international community could come in and, and help build this. But those efforts were, were really resisted early on in practice, and it was clear the signs of autocracy and a predatory security service, which was always there, during the war, you know, that really emerged. And there were elections in 2010, right before independence, and those were contested in many areas uh, with very strong accusations of rigging, but it also led to the outbreak of, of several new insurgencies. You already had a, a polity that was, that was facing uh, uh, signs of conflict, corruption was extremely high, um, and the elite, although they were clearly united in the quest for independence, had not really sat down and resolved the kind of really fundamental questions there.
2: Alan, you've written and talked, I think, very persuasively about how the zero-sum political system that the South Sudanese ended up with after independence has been a big part of the country's problems uh, since then. It's a system that concentrates a lot of power in the executive rather than you know sort of spreading it about other branches of government or devolving it to regions. We'll come back a little bit later to sort of prospects for reform of that system. But I wanted, you know, in light of how problematic it's been could you talk a little bit about how it was adopted? I mean, how the South Sudanese came to select this sort of very strong presidential system in the early days after independence?
0: Yeah, well, the short answer is that it wasn't done by consensus and it wasn't negotiated. Uh, it's interesting because, in many ways, the actions that uh, President Keir took um, soon after the gra- death of John Garang, which which is actually worth talking about, because of course he died. Uh, shortly after signing this peace deal, and his deputy took over, Salva Kiir, who's still the president, he was always seen by many as a sort of uh, transitional figure, someone who would just temporarily uh, hold over power. And what he did immediately is he basically expanded his political tent significantly. As soon as he took over, he brought on a lot of former foes who'd fought for a very long time against the SPLM. And and then in the run-up to independence, just a few months before the referendum, he held an all-political parties conference in in Juba, in which he brought in opposition forces as well as people representing the ongoing insurgencies already in the South, and promised a credible, inclusive constitutional review and sort of broad-based government if... If the South uh, voted uh, for independence, which everyone knew they they would, so there was there was a clear recognition uh, at that point that the way to hold South Sudan together at this time, given its many challenges uh, would be through broad-based consensus. The problem is, is that as soon as they voted for independence for whatever reason, including I'm sure self-interest, a lot of those promises were basically thrown to the side, and instead uh, the SPLM consolidated power and and didn't meet those commitments for a constitution instead, the constitution was basically basically. basically formed within it was written within the Ministry of Justice, which, of course, answered to Kier, and it involved a very strong presidential system, like you said. But after the SPLM then sort of started consolidating power uh, on its own, the next logical step was then there was a power struggle within the SPLM itself. Then you started to have uh, leaders, including his own vice president, Riyak Machar, and, uh, for instance, uh, John Goering's widow, Rebecca Goering, started uh, working uh, in the SPLM to challenge Kier and his own secretary general of the SPLM. SPLM, a Pagana Moon, but I think the sort of core flaw there, and I've talked with a lot of uh, South Sunni's uh, top politicians who were involved back then, and there was a sense that they were, when they look back on it, they sort of realized now they were playing with fire, but I think at the time they didn't quite recognize just how prone to collapse, and I just think uh, what was a power struggle uh, should have instead been a time to really sit down and realize that they weren't going to be able to build this country without broad-based consensus and inclusion given, given just the, the very steep path of state building and nation building uh, that was going to be required.
1: Alan, you write in the report that the Civil War came as a bit of a surprise to many who were involved in encouraging South Sudanese independence. Can you tell us what happened? How did the Civil War break out? And what did that conflict look like?
0: So after independence, the attention started to turn immediately to the fact that President Kier. Was the president, but there was a lot of other leaders in SPLM who also wanted to be president, um, and so there emerged a sort of challenge against his leadership within the ruling party. That led to him sacking uh, his vice president Riyak Machar, who came from uh, the Nuer, which is the the second largest ethnic group in. In South Sudan, uh, and President Kiir and John Garang before him were were ethnic Dinka, which was which was a larger group. Uh, neither of whom are a majority. There's no group in South Sudan who commands a, a majority. So so this started taking on ethnic tones kind of uh, immediately. And then as that was going on, uh, you basically had boycotting of the ruling party conference by uh, Riek Machar and others who were challenging Kiir. The presidential guard unit, uh, which housed uh, forces uh, that were seen as loyal to both Kir and Riyak Machar, it basically erupted in fighting largely along ethnic lines. That then led to some really, really terrible uh, ethnic massacres throughout the capital Juba. Um, it involved ethnic New Wear, um, who were being targeted as as potentially uh, loyal to Riak Machar. It involved them fleeing en masse to um, UN bases, UN peacekeeping bases across Uh, the country, hundreds of thousands fled there, um, which which speaks to the sort of level of um, fear that was there that they would be killed. Uh, Many, many were killed uh, by essentially government uh, forces. And that basically led to the military falling apart, as well as, of course, popular outrage among a really well-armed civilian population That, that eventually formed into a rebel movement out in the bush um and then and then negotiations started almost immediately largely on a basis of of forming a new power sharing government uh, that could at least end the war and and bring the country forward but it's it's really worth stating just the the levels of violence and just how atrocious a lot of the killing and targeting was um early on in the war estimates have put uh, the the death toll up to 400,000 which the population only at 8 million. So you can imagine the sort of levels of destruction that that would would indicate in South Sudan.
2: And so, Alan, that sort of horrific war raged for some years until 2018, sort of shattered a lot of people's illusions about what the country was going to look like. And then there was this peace deal. There were several attempted peace deals, but this one in 2018 has stuck since. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that peace deal entailed and and sort of what's happened since?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of challenge in getting uh these two leaders to to reach a peace deal there was an initial peace deal in in 2015 that was signed riek machar actually returned to the capital juba with his forces and those clashed with kier within a few months um and he was again sort of chased out of the capital and the war spread uh to the southern equatoria region which hadn't been that much affected Um, at the time. And then uh, Riyak Machar is essentially banished uh, to South Africa under forced house arrest and exile. But that did little to end the war. So then there was a new round of talks that was organized first by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed um, in Ethiopia, he attempted to bring the two leaders together. And finally, it was uh, basically Omar al-Bashir in Sudan, in the final months or final year of his of his rule, working together with his uh, former longtime foe, uh, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. And because Uganda and Sudan had long backed opposite sides of this conflict, those two coming together to really push the two to sign a peace deal, in many ways led to this breakthrough. So, so, so that sort of produced the the condition for a ceasefire and a unity government. And Riyak Machar, after a lot of negotiations and delay over over the number and boundaries of states inside the country due to the level of gerrymandering that took place during the war um, and territorial disputes, um, but also uh, whether or not his forces would be brought into a unified army, those sort of disputes then delayed this formation of a unified government by another year um, and eventually by the beginning of 2020. Uh, Riyak Machar did return uh, under a lot of pressure and and accepted to become vice president. Uh, that was over a year ago. There has not been a lot of progress on the peace deal since then. Uh, the top-line ceasefire has held... But there is a uh, a lot of violence, as you've noted, uh, raging throughout the countryside. And the basic question of how the country moves ahead, a sort of winner-take-all election between these two camps doesn't really seem like a very optimal solution, although that is how the peace deal is written. It's unclear how or when they would even be able to hold elections, given the state of the country and, and given the fracturing of the armed services. And then you still have an ongoing insurgency in in uh, the southern uh, equatorial region, which we've written about as well, uh, among uh, people who did not uh, sign the peace deal, largely claiming that uh, that they wanted a system of federalism instead.
1: And what do relations between Kir and Machar look like right now?
0: You know, there's a lot written about the Kir-Machar relationship, and it's 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 interesting. A lot of people's takeaway who spent significant time at the peace talks pretty understandably so is that these two men will never be able to, to work together. But taking a more historical approach, I mean, these are people who fought on opposite sides for a long period of time, um, from the 1990s, who then joined together at other periods of time, they did serve together, even after fighting against each other, you know, they served together from 2005 to 2013 as president, as vice president. um, And they ran together in the twenty. 10 elections as a joint partners. They're very much working at odds against each other. Now in this unity government, it's, it's, it's not a functional government by any means. It's, it's just an attempt essentially to to end fighting I don't think it's it's much more than that however uh, I think I think the idea that these two men could never partner with each other is is probably uh, overstated they're both tacticians above all else and if it was in their benefit to ally together um, they very much could do so 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 I think as you know the expectation is that they'll run against each other if there are elections that are held that's how they've set up their political coalitions but there are others who think that we could see them uh, if they weaken even further that we could see them possibly even run on a a, un, a peace unity ticket. Some people think that's outlandish and, and they would never do that. But I think if you look back at history, it's, it's definitely a possibility that could exist moving forward.
2: And Alan, if you sort of look at what's happening now in, in South Sudan, obviously, as you say, they're moving towards elections. They're supposedly trying to implement the, the peace deal, which involves thinking through what the security forces are going to look like, you know, various other things. At the same time, you know, as we started with, as we talked about earlier, the political system itself needs reform. South Sudanese, you know, need to m- move away from the zero-sum political system that sort of led to the zero-sum politics. How do you rate prospects for deeper reform of the, the system along those lines?
0: Prospects for reform are Obviously not good. Uh, that's because Kier, especially, who's who's really the top guy in the system, has never shown an inclination uh, to to do the sort of reforms that are required. He has he he has been someone who's been willing to accept political accommodation. Uh, when it's in his interest, but but uh, not really through uh, something that looks like permanent political settlements. Instead, it looks like sort of buying off people here and there uh, as necessary on a tactical level. So I think I think prospects for reform kind of fall in two different buckets. You have sort of the uh, prospect for reform where something changes quite quickly. Um, there's a lot of pressure on and Machar to step down and ahead of elections and basically give Uh, The country a new start. Kier himself organized a national dialogue process. And the recommendations that came out very strongly was actually that the two step aside. But of course, they have not really uh, taken that to heart. um, And there's no real sign that the two will step aside. So then questions become perhaps more, uh, what, what are the prospects for reform in a more perhaps iterative and gradual process? I mean, we, we, we think the best chance there, um, number one, is in the Constitution. There is a constitutional process uh, that is part of this peace deal. Now, that process might basically lead to nothing. It, it might essentially just create a new document that isn't followed. Uh, but there's also a chance that that actually becomes a, a, a place for not only South Sunnis to express what are now pretty widespread universities demands for for greater uh, decentralization across the system, Um, but also a chance for for South Sudanese elite to sit down and and, and to negotiate about what the basic rules of the game are in South Sudan for contesting for power, but also what a structure, a state structure might look like that South Sudanese can more broadly agree on. There's a chance that you could use this reform to at least push in that direction, though, of course, there's strong reasons for Kier to uh, and Riyak Machar to some degree to to not allow that to happen. But I think it's the, the most obvious place to start. The other place where, where there could be more focus is on South Sudan's finances. Essentially, uh, there are not public finances in South Sudan. Part of this winner-take-all struggle is because you have a very top-down political economy in which the oil revenue essentially disappears uh, when it gets to Juba. You have top government officials um, and, you know, top uh, civil society leaders, for instance, all of whom uh, do not know how much money actually the government uh, gets per month. And, you know, just just the very baseline essentials uh, for what you need for public financing. So I think uh, at least starting on trying to to focus uh, on a clearer strategy and pressure on on getting at least some transparency in terms of where the oil revenues are going, which seems like a, a necessary, if not sufficient condition for actually uh, creating a, a broader political settlement among elites. Uh, um, but as you mentioned, the, the clear path, you know, the prospects for that happening uh, within this current transition under this current leadership, I mean, no one, no one thinks those are very high.
1: Alan, your report discusses the role of external actors and specifically aid agencies and highly paid foreign consultants in setting up some of the institutions that uh, seem to have laid the groundwork for the conflict that we've seen in South Sudan. Can you tell us a bit more about that and also tell us, uh, has that role changed since then?
0: Sure. I mean, this is a really interesting uh, question. Um, the South Sudan story is, of course, a South Sudanese story. They they struggled for for decades and have and have survived some some really terrible. Uh, conditions and a very long liberation struggle. But the birth of South Sudan is, of course, also a, a geopolitical story. Um, and uh, South Sudanese themselves are very convinced, for instance, that they wouldn't have achieved independence if it wasn't for the support of, uh, of America. Um, I hear that all the time going around South Sudan. There's a sense that um, the US is basically the power that backed uh, South Sudan and really forced Khartoum to essentially give up the South. So early on uh, during this run-up to independence, you had a sort of flood of of, of state-building money, even though it was a bit sensitive at the time, because obviously they couldn't be formally building up for a new nation um, until the vote for independence. Uh, but then after the uh, the vote for independence, you you had that formalized even more, including within a, a UN peacekeeping mission, UNMIS, that uh, that had a mandate basically to support state-building and nation-building. Um, the, the the critique of that would be, you know, I often got the sense from South Sunnis that they basically thought that there was a pretty clear technical plan on how to build a country, um, that their partners were basically giving them the money to implement and that they would... Uh, uh, largely implement there was not really much of a focus on the internal politics, of course that's difficult to focus on because that's um obviously an internal affair and not one that outsiders are very able to to go about it but there there was this sense of sort of flooding South Sudan with embedded consultants in its various ministries, the sort of things like capacity building um a lot of money was put into the system there's a sense that that of course accentuated the winner take all forces. In South Sudan, by, by putting you know even basically the state building project and, and the trying to build a, a central state in South Sudan added to the sort of effect of the oil money in the in the middle of the country, but um, it also it also perhaps distracted from just how challenging uh, this task was going to be and just how political this task was going to be and I think it 's one of the reasons when I talked to South Sudanese elite that they seem really surprised and shocked by what happened. I think there's a, there was a sense that uh, someone else basically knew what they were doing. Um, And that this was this was a sort of technical roadmap that could be followed while they sort of uh, played out their power politics internally. And I think it's hard to necessarily place blame exactly on that system. But anyone who has uh, spent any time in Juba uh, like I did and like others did in the run up to to independence. I mean, the international presence was incredibly huge. This felt like an international project, but it was definitely very much one that focused on on technical aspects. And it's unclear what technical aspects they improved, because uh, this was a place that still didn't have any credible financing, and the government still provides basically no services to its people.
2: And Alan, I mean, if you, again, sort of taking a taking a look back, it was this sort of big narrative of, of success around South Sudan, which led to this emphasis, as you say, uh, US officials, the, the early UN missions, it was a sort of a state building emphasis, right? It was a sort of technical support to, to build a new state, rather than recognizing the sort of inherent... An inherently political nature of all the decisions that were being taken and an emphasis instead on sort of mediating among different factions and putting in place a process where those decisions could have been taken in a way that recognized their political nature and brought in different South Sudanese factions and thus sort of built a, a stronger consensus around them. How much was it the sort of narrative of of success that fed that uh, that, that approach?
0: there was a narrative of success. Um, I mean, I also think it's worth remembering. Yes, there was this collective blind spot toward South Sudan's internal politics, but it's also worth remembering the degree to which uh, the external backing and engagement with all of this was always about at the time ending what was Africa's longest war, which you also heard, which was the North, you know, which was seen as a North South civil war in Sudan. So it wasn't only um, this sort of the the misplaced uh, technical focus. It's also that there is a sort of washing of hands and patting on the back after independence was achieved, because the the idea was that basically uh, the you know the international community had successfully overseen the separation of Sudan and that uh, ended the long running civil war. So there was a degree to which it was seen as a success because uh, essentially the peace strategy uh, for ending this this uh, long war had 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 finally come. And there was of course a lot of trepidation that Sudan would never let the South secede, um, which was not unreasonable fears, um, and that therefore you know at the end of this. Long uh, process leading up to 2011, it would just lead to a return to civil war. So it was also where the emphasis was, you know, there was a sense that basically the creation of South Sudan itself was, was the sort of end goal. And then there was a lot of when I talked to US officials at the time, for instance, I remember walking up to several on July 9th, uh 10 years ago, you know, saying, you know, what's what's the plan here, you already have violence, you know, how do you know this will work out? Um, and I got answers such as saying, well, we, you know, there's hundreds of millions of dollars that we have to support them. So this should be all right. Also, they have oil revenue and they can invest, you know, for their own development. South Sudan actually had a higher per capita GDP than any of its neighbors, including Kenya at independence. And it was actually technically a middle income country, even though, you know, huge portions of the population are food insecure, um, but just because of the amount of oil revenue. So there, there was a sense that if you looked at this from a sort of uh, a certain technical standpoint or an, econ- or an economic standpoint, that South Sudan looked viable. Um, but then the, the the actual politics, like you said, and like we've talked about, the, the politics of forming a state, and, and what that would entail in a place that essentially didn't have one, um, it didn't have a, there wasn't a successor state it was taking over, you know, like a lot of post-colonial states, really. Um, you know, it's not connected by roads, it's awash in guns. The degree to which there is not a state there, I think, is sometimes um, difficult to fathom. I mean, I often hear South Sudan lumped in, in categories like the Democratic Republic of Congo or other quote-unquote failed states. And the degree to which South Sudan is just much less of a state than all of those places, I think, can be difficult for policymakers, especially in faraway places, to fully appreciate.
2: In some ways, the uh, South Sudanese independence 10 years ago, in some ways that bookmarked an era, post-Cold War era of, you know, Western power, Western influence and an international system that you know was usually very very resistant to the creation of new states had actually seen three new states created, you know, in the space of just over ten years. You had East Timor in in ninety nine, Kosovo, which although not rec- still not recognised by much of many governments, was also for all intents and purposes uh, split off from uh, from from Serbia, and then South Sudan, uh, and you know all of them have run into some problems, but. I think it would be hard to not to see the problems that South Sudan has run into as, as particularly grave. So looking back now, I mean, do you think it was the right decision to, to create an independent South Sudan? Does South Sudanese think, still think that that was the right decision?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously hear that question a lot. I've heard very rarely South Sudanese regret Becoming an independent country obviously there's a a lot of acrimony and regret about the way that things have gone i mean i th- I think the question is kind of an impossible question to be to be honest um because you know South Sudan did vote you know some ninety nine percent for independence when they held the referendum it's, it's hard to deny that that was uh you know that that was the that was the desire of of the South sunnis of course they were just given a binary option which was not a very which was not a great one, which was staying in a, in a system that wasn 't even trying to accommodate it under bashir or 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 secession, but they did vote overwhelming, but having said that, of course, there 's plenty of other places in the world where if you held a referendum, I think they would also vote probably pretty overwhelmingly for for independence. We just did a podcast on Somaliland, you know which has its own claims, which hasn 't been recognized so, so so that alone you know wouldn 't seem to justify uh, South Sudan's independence, you know, the national desire there and, and the historical grievances are incredibly legitimate and strong. Um, as to whether or not it was a good idea, I mean, obviously it has not worked out well. And I also just fear that the way the, uh, the state formation has gone, and it's honestly just been a very botched uh, a state formation, the way that it's gone... I'm afraid just makes it very hard to sort of put humpty dumpty back together again it's a really set South Sudan way back so you know the question that's that's in some ways more interesting is is what could have been done perhaps to to give South Sudan a better runway towards independence was there a way of sort of Structuring the peace deal, uh, giving perhaps more oversight uh, over over South Sudanese oil finances early on um, as part of their chance to uh, to get independence. There's a lot of questioning about whether or not the U.S. ever really used any of its leverage uh, over John Garang and over the SPLM later to to really try to crack down on on some of what went wrong, including corruption, but also just the, the political exclusion. But you know counterfactuals are are a bit uh, difficult uh, to say. I do think I, I do think what can be said quite quite fairly is obviously South Sunnis achieved their independence through a very long armed struggle. Um, like I said, it was also a moment in time um, geopolitically uh, as you're noting that did allow this that did allow this to happen. Um, and I think especially that uh, pressured Khartoum to both agree to this to begin with and then and then to accede to it whether or not some of that pressure could have been used to also get more concessions from the south uh, to perhaps put more pressure on the splm to have handled this whole transition to statehood better i think obviously looking back on it it, it's difficult to believe that all avenues were were successfully uh, pursued what's happened to south sudan has done no favors to other places in the world that uh, that would also like to see their own independence but of course south sudan is, is is pretty unique to south sudan
2: alan thanks so much for coming on
0: Thanks, Richard and Naz. Thanks for uh, bringing me on.
1: So, Richard, uh, we started the conversation talking about that day of celebrations in in Juba. What do you make of
2: this story? You know, NASA. it sort of it in some ways feels like a different era. I mean, very much a different era. It was 10 years ago, but it, but in some ways it really feels like a, a sort of different time. I and mean, I, I wasn't in South Sudan, but I did work in East Timor. I was there in 1999 for their uh, popular consultation on independence. Then I worked in Kosovo straight after that. And it sort of feels like South Sudanese statehood is sort of part, the, the bookend of that era. You know, I think for the most part, the international system uh, governments tend to resist new statehood claims. I mean, it sort of opens up a Pandora's box have obviously governments themselves are sensitive to the idea of, of secession claims. But there were these sort of three in succession, you know, all rooted in really quite savage repression by the central authorities. And they then sort of raised all these questions about sort of what an accelerated nation or, or state-building process looked like, and sort of all these advisors that we talked about thinking through, sort of different political models, often mistaking what were deeply political processes for technical exercises, often making some terrible decisions, but generally, I think, underestimating the difficulty of the whole, the whole exercise overall. And I think at the same time, you had this sort of backdrop to to this which was the US backed regime changes in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya. They're also sort of part of that story and I think in some ways, you know, it's quite poignant talking about this this week as the US pulls troops out of Afghanistan. It just sort of feels we we we're, we're talking about a different time when you know, when when there were a different set of assumptions about the world and the direction it was headed, a different set of assumptions about, you know, what particularly western powers could do, and uh, a different set of assumptions about the limits of Western power, or in this case, the lack of limits.
1: That's so interesting, Richard. I think in some ways, the the story of this strong interventionism, but without a real plan, without a sense of strategy, and maybe in some of Alan's comments, I thought even without a real sense of obligation to know the history of the place uh, strikes me as resonating quite a bit with the conversations we've had about, about Afghanistan and, and other flawed or failed nation-building projects. I think you're right that the the idea that this kind of a liberation struggle, if we can call it that, uh, could have the hope of, of secession or a new nation does seem implausible today in a lot of ways. Right. And as Alan said, maybe even the story of South Sudan ends up influencing the likelihood of other secessionist projects to be to gain support from other countries. Um, I was struck by the kind of the discrepancy between on the one hand this incredibly dramatic story of of the SPLM of a of a rebel movement that had for years been struggling if not for independent statehood then certainly for for some kind of greater autonomy and then these kind of technocrats with roadmaps you know walking around with a vision of of how to build a new country um and and where we find ourselves 10 years later and not necessarily that that's a causal story right that the the roadmaps didn't necessarily lead to civil war um but but maybe as you say kind of 10 years ago there was also still this sense that One could talk about nation building with a straight face, that one could talk about the idea of contributing to uh, creating a new state in a matter of a year uh, without the kind of cynicism that we would probably have today in talking about such a project.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Or a cynicism or, you know, a healthy uh, realisation of some of the difficulties that, that, that it entails. You know, in all these places, there was this, you know, this sort of heyday of international interventionism without really, you know, the sense of humility about sort of the, the, the politics of different countries and, and, and the way that things were likely to turn out. Yeah, as you say, it's it's hard to imagine quite the same happening right now be this big state building exercise and you'd have all these young American graduates turning up and uh, you know, there'd be the equivalent of Brahimi there doing his thing. And it's just, it's just seem, it does seem like another era, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of something else.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I even wonder if part of what makes it the uh, another era is that at that time, I wonder if there was more of a sense of hope or, or urgency that it mattered to end wars, right? That there was something meaningful about the idea of saying this is an agreement and this is a deal and its purpose is to end a conflict. And you can kind of mark that end and then mark the beginning of something new. Even though it didn't work out that way for South Sudan, today it feels so much more like there is this sense of an unending at least low-level conflict being seen as acceptable or even inevitable in places like Afghanistan. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
2: And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at crisisgroup.
1: Thank you very much to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly-Nemby.
2: And thank you especially to our listeners. If you like the show, please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or a review. Tell your friends about us and we'll hope you join us again next week.